Now I'm delighted to introduce tonight's panelists. Emily Bazelon is the author of a brand new book, Charge, The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. She's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law, and a lecturer at Yale Law School. Her previous book is the national bestseller, Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. She is also a co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest, a popular weekly podcast. Before joining the Times Magazine, Emily was a writer and editor at Slate, where she co-founded the women's section, Double X. The New Yorker says of her book, Charged achieves what in-depth first-person reporting should. It humanizes the statistics, makes us aware that every courtroom involves the bureaucratic regimentation of an individual's life. The Washington Post reviewer called it a riveting page-turner and an insightful analysis of the politics of law and order. Adam J. Foss, who spent nine years as an assistant district attorney here in Boston, is a powerful advocate for criminal justice reform. Honored as the Massachusetts Bar Association's Prosecutor of the Year in 2013, he has also collected accolades from the National Law Journal, The Root, the NAACP, Fast Company Magazine, and the Nelson Mandela Foundation, as well as his alma mater, Suffolk University Law School where he was named Graduate of the Decade. Currently a visiting senior fellow at Harvard Law School, he sits on the boards of Restore Justice California, the Pretrial Justice Institute. He is also a fellow at the Open Society Foundation Leadership in Government Initiative, as well as a director's fellow at the MIT Media Lab. While working as a government prosecutor, Adam collaborated extensively with the courts and the community to create programs that took positive steps to keep young people out of the cradle to prison pipeline. Recognizing the importance of the prosecutor's role in ending mass incarceration, he founded Prosecutor Impact, a nonprofit that helps participants reframe their roles in the system, which better incentivizes and more, and more measurable metrics for success beyond simply the number of cases won. Deborah Becker is our moderator for this evening. She's a senior correspondent and host at WBUR. Her reporting focuses on mental health, criminal justice, and education. Deb is also a substitute host on several WBUR programs and helps produce and report various special projects. She has worked on the launch of WRNI, Rhode Island's NPR news station, where she served as morning edition host and the host of the weekly show, Focus Rhode Island. Before coming to WBUR, she moderated, Deb moderate, worked at Monitor Radio, the broadcast arm of the Christian Science Monitor newspaper. She also worked at several Boston area radio stations and received numerous awards for her hosting, newscasts, reporting, and investigative reporting from the Radio Television Digital News Association, Public Radio News Directors Incorporated, National Educators Writers Association, the Associated Press, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, National Alliance on Mental Health, and the uh, Parent Professional Advocacy League. She also completed several fellowships in addiction, mental health, juvenile justice, and journalism in the law. 
Tonight, we gather to hear a conversation with these leading voices in the movement to bring criminal justice reform. Please join me in warmly welcoming our panel. hear me okay? Is my mic all set? You can hear me? I should know how to use a microphone, presumably. Um, my name's Deborah Becker. I'm with WBUR, and I'm really honored uh, to be here tonight to talk with, I think, two of the country's leading thinkers about a really important issue that affects millions of people in this country. We've all heard the term mass incarceration. Uh, we know that there are millions of people who are either incarcerated or somehow involved in the criminal justice system may be supervised uh, by the court system. And of course, it's a large system with all sorts of ancillary players as well, judges and court officers and lawyers and defense lawyers. And so it's a huge system. And our two guests say uh, they've got to take on some of the problems and hopefully some of the solutions as well. So um, you've heard about Emily's new book. Uh, it's a terrific book. It's about the movement to transform uh, prosecution and mass incarceration. And I'm going to start with Emily, and then we're going to talk for maybe 40, 45 minutes, and then we'll open it up to your questions. Uh, so, Emily, you said something at the start of your book that I, I thought was incredible. It was in the introduction. I wrote it down here because I, I wanted to make sure that I had it right. And you said, the country's embrace of mass incarceration may come to seem nearly as shameful as slavery does now. I know that's a bold statement to start with, but I wanted to make sure we got that in. Why, why did you say that? Um, I'm going to answer that, but I just want to start by saying thank you to both of you for doing this event with me. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you to the Athenaeum, and thank you to my family who um, came tonight, my local family, which I really appreciate. Um, yeah, I thought a lot about whether that comparison was a fair one to make. I ran it by <laughs> some people, and my justification for it is that you know, slavery obviously had this um, horrifying impact on so many people's lives, and it turned out to be a completely terrible and unnecessary system for its own goals. Um, I think the same is true of mass incarceration. Um, it is not necessary to deter crime. Not, nothing like the level of incarceration we have in this country is necessary. Um, it is infected with the same kind of racial bias um, that's like a poison through the whole system. And I think we're going to come back and look at it as just um, our very shameful example of um, hurting people for no good reason. You know, I've covered the criminal justice system, and that coverage includes a lot of the problems, right? And a lot of folks say, but it's the best system. It's, it's about fairness. It's jury of your peers. You know, there are all sorts of constitutional protections. So something obviously went wrong there um, with that ideal and with what is the reality in most courtrooms. What happened? Well, I mean... First of all, I think sometimes Americans have this exceptionalism idea of our system that we don't really think very hard about whether it's deserved or not. 
Um, so when you look at European justice systems, they're not adversarial. We have the prosecutor versus the defense lawyer. The judge is supposed to be up here. I think, first of all, that power dynamic has shifted um, in large part since the sort of tough on crime wave of politics that started in the 60s, really took off in the 80s with a lot of mandatory sentencing. We are so far from the constitutional protections we think we have. The trial by jury is enshrined in the Bill of Rights. It's right there. We are now at a point where in a lot of state court systems about 2% of convictions actually um, come about through trials. So the system doesn't work the way it was designed. I also think though that when you look at um, European justice systems, you see them designed with um, this core principle that almost everyone who goes into the system with criminal charges Whatever happens to them along the way, they're going to come back out and be part of the community. And so the whole system is designed to help them come back in a way that their lives are better. They're better off for themselves and for our sake, too. And we have designed a system that is just almost entirely about punishment and retribution. Adam, I assume you went into the profession thinking that those ideals were what happened. And what you saw was likely different. Otherwise, you wouldn't be helping to lead some of these reform efforts. What do you think happened to allow us to stray so far from what we're supposed to be? Um, I, picking up on, on sort of like what Emily said about this American exceptionalism, um, just the belief that we are the best, despite the mountain of evidence to the contrary. Um, we're lawyers, like we make everything in our lives about evidence, and yet this one thing, um, we've proven the case in the opposite direction that we're the best. And, it, and it's resonant to me because when I came to this office here in this city, um, my entire training was, this is the best office in the country, this is the best office in the country, this is the best office in the country. And all the meanwhile, we actually had the second highest racial disparity in the entire country. And so like this, I, this idea that we can say things and get young people who are lathered up to believe it, uh, then it's very easy to just go to work every day and continue to do the same detrimental thing without ha having any feedback about whether or not that's actually true. And so when I, when I like drill down on it, if you look at the private sector, businesses can't say we're the best business and show like a, a debt sheet that, that's a mile long. Uh, if you're not making revenue, if you're not making the best product, you, you die as a, a business. That the opposite is true in the government. We can say all day, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best, and nobody can prove us wrong because we don't collect any data. We have no feedback for our employees. We don't really listen to the people that are impacted. We listen to the people that have the most political and economic capital to get us elected and, and keep us in these seats. And so we can say all of these things, and it's really hard to defend against that, unless and until people start collecting data and showing in our faces how untrue that is, which is what uh, is really driving a lot of this movement now is finally like the, the wedding to looking more like the private sector and demanding data and transparency from offices to prove uh, when DAs come out and say we're the best, we have the highest conviction rate, we're the safest place on, on the planet. Is that what you think will help reform if there's data or what? what I mean, what? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, like, information doesn't really matter anymore. Um, you can, I don't know, like, be the president and say things, and people just believe you. Um, you need to change hearts and minds, and that is about culture. And I don't think the private sector would be doing as well as it is now if they went away from just let's make as much money as possible and not pay attention to the wellness and the happiness of our employees or talk about culture and mission and goals. Um, the private sector 
particularly the businesses that are way up at the top of the Fortune uh, 500 list, uh, have gone away from let's think about the best way, the most efficient way to make the most amount of money. They've gone to how do we keep our users and our employees the most happy, and that will the money will come from that. And so I think the Hearts and Minds campaign is one, like getting the information out to the public in a way that makes them care, uh, and two, making sure that the employees who are on the line doing this job every day are made, made to feel like you, you do have value here. The thing that you, you are doing is working towards the goals that you're saying, safety, accountability, and justice. I wonder, Emily, in your book you talk a lot about, uh, you say prosecutors actually have more power than judges. Adam, how much discretion did you have as a prosecutor? Did you have unchecked power and little transparency? Would you agree with that? Carp launch. Carp launch. Yep. And so you could basically decide who to charge, what to charge for. Yes. That make you nervous? Uh, no, not at the time. Again, you're like you're told you're the best. Don't worry about it. You're the best. Uh, and I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm great. Um, <laughs> you were young. I was. So there's a the thing, right? Like. These, the, we, we have this idea in our mind that mass incarceration is driven by top-down policies pressed down on the offices that everybody's just following the line. It's actually the exact opposite. Unlike almost every other system that operates, the people who, uh, if I'm a new lawyer in a corporate firm, I go in and I'm in the slog. Like I'm in, the, I'm, I'm in doc review. I'm looking at files. I have no responsibility whatsoever except to just bill hours. Um, I have no contact with our client or our user. It's all the partners. And I have all the supervision of the world. But as a prosecutor, uh, my first day was in Roxbury Court on the line in the arraignment session, just churning through an arraignment, uh, arraignment caseload. And that's where the most important work is being done. And I look to my right to my supervisor, and it's like, oh, you've been here for six months longer than me. Th that's, that's the person who's like, no, no, ask for bail. Don't ask for bail. Like, I never saw the DA in my courthouse, not one time in the four years that I was there. And so the, this idea that, like, the top-down leadership is driving all of this. Is, is uh, it, it's not the, the source of the problem. The problem is young people making lots and lots of uninformed decisions because they're afraid and they have no feedback loop to say you're doing a good job or a bad job. Hmm. Uh, well, uh, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I want to get back to your book a little bit because some of the things that you talk about about how we got to the evidence of this problem, this huge problem with mass incarceration or things like plea bargaining, which you briefly mentioned about how many cases are plea bargained and how they're not done in open court. And also you talked about something in the book that I wasn't familiar with, the trial penalty. Can you tell folks what that's all about? Yeah, sure. So this is part of the charging power prosecutors have, which Adam was just describing. I wish I could bring Adam on the road with me. I've been going to DA's offices all over the country, and a lot of prosecutors really push back at this notion that they have unchecked power. They don't like that idea because that comes with a lot of responsibility. But charging in the United States, often you have a choice, not every single crime, but there are a lot of crimes where there's like a menu of options. So I'll take one that I write about in my book. In New York City, in New York State, if you have a loaded gun and you don't have a permit, you could be charged with the most serious felony, which is a three and a half year mandatory minimum prison sentence. This is, these are people, no criminal record, they could have the gun in their house. That's still the possible charge. But then there's a menu. It goes all the way down to a misdemeanor in which there's no jail or prison at all. So the prosecutor has a lot of um, choices here. In New York City, they almost always start with the maximum charge. Why? Because then they have more power to induce a guilty plea. And the way it works is that you start with this three and a half year to 15 year sentence. That's the baseline. And then you say, if you plead guilty, we'll knock it down. 
If you go to trial, we're going to ask the judge for the maximum. That's the trial penalty. The idea is that if you make us do the work of a trial, and trials are work for the lawyers and the judges, then we are going to make you pay for it. The lawyers and the judges benefit from, from avoiding trials because it keeps the system moving much faster. And they're the repeat players in the system who at this point the system is working for. But if you're the defendant, it means that even if you have a good case, a good case for innocence, a good case that, for example, the cops stopped you illegally, you are going to be taking a huge risk, right? You're looking at 15 years in prison versus a much lower sentence if you'll just agree to plead guilty. And then lots of people agree to plead guilty. Mm. And that doesn't sound like justice to me. <laughs> I mean, it depends where you're situated, right? So, you know, you can... I would agree with you, but I think there are plenty of prosecutors for whom this is such an important tool. They don't want to give it up. And at this point, to be fair, it's unimaginable to think about the American system without plea bargaining, right? Mm. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't function if, if the plea bargain didn't exist. Um, and, and, not, and not just to the benefit of all defendants. Like, the plea bargain in lots of ways is good for people who want to take responsibility. They don't want to be incarcerated. They want to get out. And uh, there is room for in the discussion about how do we resolve when people want to take responsibility quickly for for harm that they've caused. How do we do that in a way that has the uh, the smallest footprint on that person's future, allowing them to express all the accountability that they need to express? We we don't even like have that discussion with people. We we uh, have been so conditioned to see this tool, which is valuable in in lots of cases when you have people who have been constantly doing bad things in the street and you finally get them on that one case, this is a tool that we can use. The problem is not for the necessary times that we use it, which is 4% of the time. It's for the, because it exists, we use it 96% of the other time on cases that we don't really need to. And so that's, and when you do that, the public is seeing that happening constantly. That uh, dis disintegrates the, the collective trust of the public in the system and the result of that is that when people are harmed, they're not picking up the telephone. And that's when we're the least safe, is when people are who are in communities who see how the criminal justice system has treated their neighbor or their cousin or their brother, they are reluctant to pick up the phone and call 911 there when they are harmed. And that is the, the least safe that we can be. I wonder, you, you said a couple of things, that this requires a cultural change more than anything else, that it can't be top-down, even though this movement that we're talking about now is largely about electing reform-minded DAs who lead these offices. So how do things then change and trickle down, and how do things change in courtrooms where what you're talking about here a lot of times just seems like arbitrary justice? I mean, how, how you're, you train people to do this. You're working in the Philadelphia DA's office at the moment, I yeah. believe, right? So how, how, does it, how does it change then to be a more fair system? So one is a recognition that the generations of people who are coming in to be prosecutors are different than they were 10 years ago. Uh, when I came into the DA's office 10 years ago, uh, I came in without even like the notion of mass incarceration being a thing. People had just started talking about it. The new Jim Crow wasn't written yet. We knew that there was a problem, but nobody had a name for it. And it was very easy to just hear like you're the best and without any evidence otherwise to just go to work and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's fine. Uh, this generation, because of social media, because of sort of like the, the rise of criminal justice reform and conversation, there are people in law school right now who want to be prosecutors to fix the system. Not because we're like, eh, everything's fine, I'm going to go be one of the good guys. So that's, that is a massive opportunity because they are driving what the culture is in offices because there's so many of them. Uh, people stay in offices and they hang around, 
but the turner the turnover is in the bottom you know one to five year range people come and go when i started as a da here in boston with a relatively medium sized to smaller size office i started with 23 people and in a very short amount of time those people were leaders in units or in their courthouses uh, or just culturally sort of like people who were looked to as leaders and when you think about in Philadelphia, we just trained 40 of their new prosecutors. That's that's uh, a tenth of the workload, and they're already uh, just just from training in the summertime, they're already t taking leadership positions uh, in other parts of the of the office. Uh, so that's one way. It's just like understanding that young people are the path forward, and there there are more of them than there are of this like entrenched level of of leaders. The second thing is like giving people actual feedback about. Uh, that they're achieving the goals that we set out. All the words that we use, safety, accountability, justice, fairness, all these things, they're, they're great to talk about in places like this in my law school across the street, but how do you measure that in a courthouse uh, other than are you going to trial and winning them? Going to trial and winning them has nothing to do with any of those things. Like nobody in this room would tell you because of all the trials in my neighborhood, I was safe in my home. You wouldn't say that because it's not true. I have a jury of my peers walk into, a, walk into a courthouse any day of the week and go look at a trial, look at the defendant, and then looking at the 12 or, 60, or 6 people sitting in the jury box, and ask yourself, is this really like a jury of my peers? Fundamentally, no. So we, we've, got, we've gotten this metric that this is the determinant of our success, even though it's divor completely divorced from our ultimate goals. Meanwhile, if you ask all the people in this room, what kept you safe as, as when you were young, what, what what made you feel safe? You'd hear things like, I had a roof over my head, I had two parents, I went to school and it, I felt good, I played sports, I had health care. And so as prosecutors, why don't we shift the metrics to when this person walked in the door, where were they at, at all of those metrics? And what have you done as a government official with coercive power, lots and lots of coercive power, to increase the amount of those aspects of their life um, being present? And if you've done that, I want to reward you for that. I want to see young people graduating from high school. I want to see young people graduating from college. I want to see people enjoying healthy relationships that were once domestic. If we can do that as prosecutors and, and value for that, uh, we're getting closer to our goals. And one, it, it feels way better than getting lied to that this, the only thing that I'm taught to do is the way that we get to our goal. I want to talk about oversight. If there is this much power, who's in charge of making sure that it doesn't go unchecked? And you talk about this in, in your book quite a bit. You profiled two cases in your book, one in Tennessee, one in New York, two very different district attorneys. Um, and you also talk about the oversight that is supposed to be in place for prosecutors and district attorneys. I wonder if you want to explain that a little bit to folks. Yeah, I mean, we live in a system of basically lack of oversight for prosecutors. We can start by blaming the Supreme Court, which in the 1970s made prosecutors absolutely immune from lawsuits. So the cops are have qualified immunity. It's hard to sue them. It is almost impossible to sue a prosecutor personally. And then the court, several years later, made it really, really hard to sue a whole DA's office or a city for grave constitutional errors. So when the Supreme Court did those things, they said, don't worry, because if prosecutors do wrong, other prosecutors will come and prosecute them. And that just does not happen. We, it's like virtually unheard of. In my research, I found two prosecutors who went to jail for a couple days each in the whole country for you know the last 50 years. That's just not 
a real remedy. Um, and the other sort of missing player here is the legal profession and the bar. So the Supreme Court also promised that the legal profession would punish prosecutors by taking away their bar cards and their livelihoods if they had um, committed a grave error, if they had a pattern of violations. That just very rarely happens also. Um, I tell a story about a supposed ethics trial involving um, a prosecutor in Memphis in my book. And I won't give away the end, but let's just say it is very hard for three local lawyers to threaten the livelihood of another local lawyer. People just don't like to sit in judgment of their professional peers. And for all the usual um, ways in which the deck feels stacked against a defendant, you know, usually a low-income person, often a person of color, it was just the opposite in this particular courtroom with a prosecutor on trial. These um, lawyers who were the judges were bending over backward to um, let this person explain away the harm that he had done. What's, what's really interesting about that is... All of that is true, except when the DA does not look like our traditional version of a DA. And then? <laughs> and so what you see now with the election of women, the election of women of color, uh, is an entirely different landscape of how we feel about prosecutorial action. So you see when a prosecutor in Chicago dismisses a garbage case that gets dismissed all the time against white kids who screw up in prep school, um, you see the police union out, you see the mayor, you see a lawsuit. Kim Fox is getting subpoenaed to a, to a grand jury right now for her, um, for her handling of this case. That never happens if the DA's name is Daniel Conley. Like, never. You see Aramis Ayala coming out and saying, um, the death penalty is stupid. We don't actually go through with it ever. It's really, really expensive. It's not a deterrent. It's, it's, it's uh, racially biased. I'm not going to do it. You see a governor come in and try to restrict and reduce her power. And locally, That's in Florida, that one. You, and then locally, you see a DA who says, I'm, I'm actually just gonna codify lots of things that are already going on, on in our office. And I'm gonna back it up with tons of data. I'm gonna spend lots of time and money on developing this document. It's literally just the codification of things that good people in that office have been doing for years. And what do you see? This overhanded, misogynistic, racist letter coming from the state house to this person, Rachel Rollins, down the street, mm -hmm. to say cease and desist, how dare you challenge the status quo? That never happens if the other dude wins. Well, you know, speaking of Rachel Rollins, uh, she has come out with a, you know, she came out with a list of do not prosecute, a so-called do not prosecute list of crimes that she said she didn't want to be uh, prosecuted right away, depending on the circumstances. And then she came out with a policy paper not too long ago. And it's my understanding that she's getting some criticism, even from folks who were, you know, former supporters. And they're concerned about crime. They're concerned about crime increasing. And one gentleman who regularly attends sort of focus groups um, about uh, crime in some communities in Boston said to me, I don't know that the district attorney recognizes how sophisticated some criminals are, that they might try to pin it on a juvenile to get a lesser sentence, that they're, de they're deliberately gaming the system over and over again because they understand it, but crime is down and this system is keeping us safe. Can both of you respond to that? Um, so, you know, one way to think about this is to remember that our resources are finite. So when a DA spends a lot of time and attention prosecuting people for 
possession of marijuana, which has got to be one of the things on Rollins's list. That means those resources aren't going to more serious crimes. Adam was talking before about the problem of whether people trust the system, whether they think it's legitimate. We know there's lots of evidence that if people think the law and law enforcement are legitimate, they're more likely to follow the law and they're more likely to help the police solve crimes, show up as witnesses. In this country, we only solve 60% of the murders nationally. That's really low compared to European countries. So you can think of this problem of lack of trust as one that actually has serious implications for all of our safety. And when you spend all the time and resources, or a lot of it, prosecuting low-level crimes in poor neighborhoods, people see that that's not keeping them safe. And they also get mad because they see their brothers and cousins and kids getting jacked up by the cops all the time. They're the ones in the courthouses. So I think, to some degree, the problem here is that a lot of the voters in the past who had the power and were sitting in judgment of the system, maybe like the person in your focus group, they're not the people who are the most directly impacted Sweet. by criminal justice. Sweet. And <laughs> thank you. And when you spend a lot of time reporting with people who live in poor neighborhoods where the police are a more constant presence, of course they want policing and good policing, right? We all want our neighborhoods properly patrolled. But that does not mean that they want their kids pulled up on marijuana offenses. And they can see that, you know, white, better off people are getting away with this stuff all the time. It, it feels rigged to them. And that's dangerous for all of us. This, this idea that, like, the criminal mind is so sophisticated that they're thinking about the black letter law of what the legislature is doing is, like, that is those are the people who don't believe in climate change. It's like, <laughs> close your mouths while you're breathing. Stop, pick up your hands off the ground. Like, that is so fundamentally stupid and lazy. That's a lazy thing to put out there in the air because you've, you've obviously never studied like human behavior or adolescent brain development or poverty or the, ne the need for survival. A 16-year-old kid taught me this lesson. In, in, one, in one sentence, he just said, do you, do you really think that when I was out there robbing people that I was thinking about DYS? It's like I was thinking about giving money to my mom so we didn't get evicted. The criminal laws for the land of the living. I'm out here trying to survive. And that little nugget of wisdom, and I see two brothers in this audience that know well, John Feynman from Inner City Weightlifting and Jumani Kendrick, uh, right here in the front, two of our neighborhood's best assets. Um, they know that like that is not a, that's not a real thing. Uh, Saying, saying things like, we understand that you are unsafe, we understand that this, this system has done nothing for you as a victim or an offender, um, we understand that we have some accountability to, to lend to you, and then we will listen, and then we will ask you for accountability from yourselves and your actions. But could lesser criminal consequences make people think that they could commit crimes more freely? D why don't you do heroin? <laughs> Tell me, why, why do you not do heroin? I, I don't want to. Because <laughs> you have a lot of things to live for, probably, but, right? Like, Just right. to make yeah. assumptions we, about we you. We do not do heroin because it's illegal. We do not do, we not do heroin because it's, it's we, gross and we know it's bad for us. We don't rob people, not because it's illegal, but it's because we don't need to rob people. Mm. This idea that like the criminal law is what's keeping the rest of us from being you know, zombies who are shooting and stabbing and robbing and, and taking drugs and all these things, is ludicrous, and we don't need an like we don't need to come up with this art artistic example of it. I, before I became a prosecutor, I saw a place where the criminal law was as, as good as it is in the streets of Dorchester, Roxbury, and Mattapan, and I saw just as many people defying it. In fact, I saw way more people defying it. 
I saw tens of thousands of crimes in this place. Physical assault, sexual assault, the, the, the uh, robbery of intellectual property, the overconsumption and sale of, of narcotics, the overconsumption and sale of alcohol, cheating, fraud, stealing. And the police were never involved and everybody was fine because it took place in the campus at UMass Amherst. And we've just decided, like, we're okay with that there because we know that if we give you this thing at the end of the road, you're going to be a little bit older and you're going to have a college degree and we know that you're less likely to commit crime that way. But the fact that you are out of school and you're black and you're poor and you live in these neighborhoods, you, you don't get that pass. We don't, we, don't, we don't have the confidence that you're going to succeed. And that drives community trust. People see the disparity in the treatment and so like, yeah, like, it doesn't matter what the law says. I'm not going to follow it because it's not, it's not fair to me. You'd agree, I take it. Well, you know, I was thinking of a story from my book that might help drive this home. Um, so one of the main characters in my book, I called him Kevin because I'm protecting his privacy for his own safety. Um, he grew up in Brooklyn. He gets caught with a gun. Um, I'm following him. He gets a second chance in Brooklyn. He's going through this diversion program while a prison sentence is holding him over, holding, hanging over his head. And one day he's supposed to meet me and he's super late. And I'm sitting there thinking like irresponsible. And then he comes in and he's like visibly shaken. What's happened? Okay, so he was on the subway in Brooklyn. He switched at one of the main stations. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. This is a 21 year old at this point. The police stopped him and said, you look to us like you're truant from school. So Kevin said, no, I'm 21, but he'd forgotten his ID that morning. So they hauled him down to the precinct. They, he said, can you just call my mom? Can you just call my social worker? I have a social worker at the DA's office. Like, just call him. He'll tell you. Um, I was on my way downtown to meet him and to meet me later. And uh, they wouldn't call. They wouldn't call. He gets stuck there for four hours. And so... Who does this happen to? Um, he, when he finally shows up, and I'm like talking to him about the story, I'm thinking of my kids. I have two teenage sons. They're not that much younger than him. I don't live in New York, but if I did, I cannot imagine that if my children were riding the subway one morning at 10 o'clock, they would have wound up in a precinct station for hours being unable to call their mom. It's just not the same for everyone. And we think, I think sometimes we assume that that's necessary for people who are poor and especially people of color, but in fact, it backfires. Then you end up with this kid who's like deflated and humiliated and less trusting than ever of the whole criminal justice system. And if somebody, like, if somebody did that to your kids. I would be really mad. <laughs> I was really and, and mad, your, actually. And your anger, like the amplification of your anger means so much more to the DA than the amplification of Kevin's mom yeah. because of who Kevin's mom is and what she looks like and what she brings during election time. Really? So you would see that when you were a prosecutor? Was it? No, from, I mean, parents, parents, like getting involved. And would the DA listen more to those parents? I mean, if we're, if we're being real, real, like we didn't see those cases because they had a direct line to Dan Conley. Huh. Like, and I'm using Dan Conley as a euphemism for like the, the supervisor or whatever. We, you, if you saw those kids in the courtroom, then those parents didn't have the direct line. I don't know how many cases we just never saw because a parent picked up a phone, a donor picked up a phone, somebody that knew somebody picked up the phone, and those cases just went away before they even got to us. The case that did get to us, you'd see on the same day in a courthouse, I saw three kids from Brookline who had come over to West Roxbury and had uh, destroyed a synagogue. Like, think of the worst things that you could possibly think that these children had done, and they did them. And we can like wax poetic about what is the response to that being that they're children. But they're three white children, they're all dressed in suits, they have 
both, mom and dad's both there for all three kids. They have lawyers, they have social workers, they have coaches and all these things. And on the same day, I have a kid who, uh, the hell did he do? Like, uh, threw, a, threw a, a, a rock at the T as it was passing by. He shows up in court. Uh, neither mom or dad are there. And there's many reasons for that. They're, they're at jobs. And they sometimes can't. they are there, too. Not if, that day. If, if they have the privilege to be there and take time off work, they can be there. Or if they're not dealing with other, other things that are going on in their lives, they can be there. Uh, that kid gets locked up into DYS. The other three kids get this uh, speech from the judge about making better choices, and they go home without, without even being charged. And so the, the power of like the parent, who that parent is, and, and, and when they're there, and it's not true just of children, this is true of everyone who shows up in a courthouse, is a, a fundamental conversation that we need to be having, because it's, it's all about privilege. Hmm. And about attention, right? So I sometimes feel like, as a reporter, I am skewing the outcome by asking questions about a case, and that just by observing and making sure that you're asking the questions, you've trained a spotlight, all of a sudden the outcome looks different and the defense lawyer is saying, like, I wish you were there all the time. Why are we seeing this now, at this time, this movement to reform? Why didn't it happen? Well, I know it may have started, you know, a couple of years ago with Ferguson, Black Lives Matter, but it seems like it's really hot right now for this? Why is it now? So I think the broad answer has to do with the costs of mass incarceration, the fiscal costs coming home to a lot of voters and state lawmakers, making people feel like, wait a minute, what is the return on investment here for a system where two-thirds of the people who go to jail and prison get out and then come back? We're not doing things that are preparing them for a different life the way we were saying Europeans tend to do better. Um, and then I think specifically the movement to elect new DAs. Honestly, Adam gets some credit here for a very viral TED speech, TED talk, sorry, that he gave a few years ago that got a lot of attention. The Black Lives Matter movement gets credit for making this a priority, for realizing that um, after the protest, there had to be a tangible good that they were delivering to their voters. And it turns out that not that many people pay attention to DA elections. So if you get your people out, the people who are impacted, you can change who sits in that chair. And Adam is right, it's not going to be enough on its own, but it has some meaning in terms of the direction of the office, what, who gets rewarded in the ranks below, what kind of culture and training people start bringing in. So I think those are two important ingredients. It's also important to say that this is a bipartisan support effort, right? There are a lot of people, a lot of conservatives worried about the costs, also worried about how invasive the government has become, how expansive the criminal code is. I mean, this is an issue where you have the Koch brothers lining up with the ACLU. You can have other issues with the Koch brothers if you're talking from a liberal point of view. But on this one, they actually see the overweening government power, and they care about um, second chances. And so do a lot of conservative evangelicals. So I think there's this constant of forces. And I also have to say, it's not my favorite factor because it's fragile, but crime is down. And that has kind of opened a window of opportunity here. But do you think, because I know as a reporter who covers criminal justice, that many times it's difficult uh, for folks to pay a lot of attention to it unless they've been directly affected. So like you said, a lot of people don't turn out for DA elections. They don't put it together sometimes, I think, or they don't feel like they can make a difference. So 
Um, what do you What do you do about that to to make people care? This, <laughs> this, like, this. I'm looking around the room. And I love all of you, but like, uh, I would. How do you know that? I would. Will, I'd be willing to bet because they're. You know, this is they're my, home, this is my okay. hometown. Um, I'd be willing to bet that like mass incarceration hasn't touched their lives in a fundamental way, and hopefully they're going to leave this place and be like, yo. You wouldn't believe what I heard last night. Like, we should be paying attention to Rachel Rollins and what's going on in the city because that, like, this election that happened here is one of the, the biggest shocks of the last three or four years in terms of prosecutor reform. And it happened because, not because uh, everybody was on board and just understood. It was because the uh, population most impacted by the system came out and drove and said, we're taking this seat back that has long been occupied by people who don't care about us. Um, so that's, like... A, a major thing. One is just like uh, exposure, and this is true. This is true across the board. This is true about the culture question that you had. Um, this is true about uh, sort of like how do you get police and judges thinking differently. It's just the exposure of these realities. Uh, one of the craziest things that happened after the TED talk um, was the, the statement of all these really intelligent, wealthy, privileged people saying, "I didn't know this," and so it's like profound to me how little people who will rush up to me after a talk and say, do you know Brian Stevenson? Have you seen the 13th? Have you read this new Jim Crow? And then I'm like, do you know who your DA is? And they're like, what's a DA? You know, there's like a, a lack of public education. But once they get it, they realize like, man, I'm spending so much time watching this house storm happening in Washington, D.C. when really, if I care about these issues, then I can get like 10 of my friends and make a huge difference locally. The ACLU did a poll in Massachusetts a couple of years ago, and almost half of the people who responded didn't know they had the power to elect their local DA. So just raising up that makes a difference. And what we're talking about here is salience, right? It's There's a menu of things to care about in the world and things to measure political candidates by and things to vote according to whether it actually matters to you or not. And criminal justice, you're right, has been pretty low on that totem pole for a lot of people with means because we'd rather not think about it, yeah. right? It's stigmatized. You don't want to be the person um, standing there in front of the judge with the prosecutor having all the power. You don't want your family members to be that people. And so you would rather have it be over here, shut away, and not think about it. So, I mean, this is my job as a journalist, right? It's to stand there instead of you and then hopefully get you interested in the people who are affected so that maybe you'll think about it some more. Mm. There also have been this really interesting movement um, to watch what's happening in court that's sprung up. So people, it's called court watch. Like, you go and you observe, and then... It's here, too. And it's, it's here, here too, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then and that helps you hold the system accountable, right? So forever we've had this problem where a high-profile crime is what the media coverage is all about. It's what drives the politics. DAs, mayors, legislators, they respond. You're not supposed to, you know, let someone out of prison and have them kill someone. That is bad. Those sort of aberrant cases have had a tremendous influence. The court watch folks show up and they see someone get locked up when they stole a bar of soap. That happened recently in Manhattan. And then they tweet about it. They're all over social media. They're giving the DA there a hard time about that kind of inequity. And that is a way of every day showing the cost of overpunishment, which is usually something we pay almost no attention to. And so I'm so glad that you just brought this up because it's like court watch and it's an organization. It's these like activists and it's awesome. Um, the courthouse is public for a reason. <laughs> Because we, our money pays for the functioning of the courthouse and all of its employees. And so when, at the dawn of time, when they're like, 
if this is going to be the model, we have to make it public so that people can see how their money is being spent. The issue is that the only people who see how it's being spent are the people who are impacted, not the people who are spending the money. And so the people who are spending the money, it's like, everything's fine. My, my neighborhood's good. They must be doing the right thing. But what is, what is revolutionary about Court Watch is like people coming from neighborhoods that are outside of Dorchester, Mattapan, Roxbury, what those places used to look like, East Boston, Chelsea, Jamaica Plain. Uh, those people coming into the courthouses in those places and being like, whoa, this is how my money's being spent? Weird, I'm gonna tweet about this. Because when people who are impacted tweet, tweet about it, it sounds like sour grapes. It's taken as like, right. of course you're saying this. Your kid's locked up, or, or this, that, and a third. Of course but, you're innocent. Yeah, of mm -hmm. course you're innocent. You, you, everything is heard as, as mitigation excusing. But when it's somebody who is detached, and more importantly, has nothing to do with it other than like, this is my taxpayer money, that's when you get sort of like this, this a tremendous amount of support, engagement, and response to the Core Watch people. But I think you've also got a, a split system. Um, today there was a press conference with Rachel Rollins of Suffolk County, Marion Ryan of Middlesex County, talking about a lawsuit uh, not allowing ICE agents to go into courtrooms. Um, and there are two of 11 district attorneys who are, are going against this. So that's only one part of the state, a, a small part of the state. Well, well they, they're probably the largest. Two out of 11 is a lot better than a lot of other states. Uh, well, it is, but, but it's, right. it's like an ocean liner, right? I mean, and you've got a system that wants to keep things status quo as well, right? So that's something else. So, so what do you do to deal with that? Well, one of the things that some of these reform-minded prosecutors are doing is creating a kind of alternate political lobbying force. So they have the credibility of their offices, and they can say, actually, we're not here to do ICE's work for them. We need the courthouses to be safe places for witnesses and defendants. We need our folks who are undocumented immigrants to be able to show up here and help us prosecute cases. And what you're doing, ICE, is actually making us all less safe by scaring the immigrant community out of calling the police and showing up and helping us solve crimes. And that voice has really been missing. We have not had prosecutors from the inside criticizing the system. It changes the political dynamic. And, and I don't, I don't want to like conflate it as if it's like two and 11. I, I don't know what the conversation was, but last year, if Rachel's not there, then it's zero. The fact that it's two is because now Rachel's here and she's creating space for other people to be like, oh, well, that's safe. I'm going to go over here. And I guarantee you by six months from now or next year, uh, DA from Berkshire County will be on board. DA from Hamden County will be on board. There is a, there is something about critical mass in these, in these places that you just need a few people to like open that door and then all of a sudden you'll see the rest of them being like, oh, that's politically expedient. I want the hype that you get. I want to be in the, you know, like if we were talking about like the, the Cape and the Islands DA and, and Essex County, no offense to either one of those places, <laughs> like you're, you're, you're not going to see this, but we're talking about Suffolk County, the largest county, uh, the largest populace in New England and Middlesex County, the largest by area uh, county next to Queens, and I, I, I forget the other one, but it's like, you know, you know this. I know. You're, you're <laughs> Massachusetts <laughs> geography is way beyond me. Um, and, and so, like, and this is happening everywhere. You see, you see in, in, in places, um, I've, I've been to, God, 70 offices now around the country in the last five years. Um, but you see these little cells popping up in Louisiana. Uh, I got a call from the Rapids Parish, Louisiana DA. I was like, are you sure you're, you know who you're talking to, right? Like, <laughs> I'm, the right I'm, I'm the guy. And so I go down there and he's like, there's four of us in this state that want to go in this direction. 
huh. will you come work with the four of us? And I'm like, hell yeah, I, Louisiana, sure. I will get right in here. Because what, and I just did this out in Oregon with five, five of their 10 DAs. It's just like, if I can get five, that's way better than zero. And once you get five, it's very difficult for the other five to be like, you're all wrong. What about, though, you mentioned, I thought this was interesting because you mentioned legislatively and lobbying. And now you are in the land of, of Willie Horton. Everyone remembers, you know, what happened. And then not, uh, not that long ago in 2010. Especially in Massachusetts, right, everybody remembers. Right. And an entire parole board was fired after a parolee um, uh, shot and, and killed someone. So it's very reactive, as it is um, most places. Politicians can be very reactive when there's a big crime and shut everything down. I think our parole right now is one of the worst in the country because still because of what happened nine years ago. So this is one part of reform. And if reform will help people trust the system, what about the other parts of the system and the parts particularly controlled by people who are directly impacted by voters? And what, what happens with that? So I worry about this a lot. I was on the phone. I was writing a story recently for the New York Times, and I was covering a decision that the prosecutor in Seattle made to ask the governor to commute 21 life sentences. So this guy, Dan Satterberg, he um, takes a look at the old three strikes regimes in Washington state. Folks were imprisoned for life for crimes like armed robbery. They had aged out of the time that people are really um, a threat Statistically speaking, we know that once people hit their late 30s, early 40s, the chances they're going to be violent criminals again go way down. So Satterberg puts himself in the line. He gets these 21 sentences commuted. I'm writing about this. My editor says to me, you know what? I think something went wrong. You better go back and check. So my editor's right. One of those 21 people killed someone after he got out of prison. I saw that. I was like, uh-oh, what if my paragraph is like in trouble now. Um, and I, and like, what is Dan Satterberg going to say about this when I call him? So I call Dan Satterberg and he says, look, that was a tragedy. It was a terrible thing that happened. If you look at the overall rate of reoffending of these 21 people, it is much lower than the normal rate for people who commit violent crimes. I am not going to be stopped by this. That's a new political dynamic, that kind of fearlessness in the face of failure. We got to get ourselves there because there always are going to be mistakes, right? It's not an infallible system. And in the same way that you don't decide that like a doctor is a terrible doctor for losing one patient, you also can't decide that all of reform goes out the window because one person who got a second chance blew it. Can you, can you imagine like what the aviation industry would look like if we decided what happened with the aviation industry based on plane crashes. And that's what we're talking about. Like you brought up the name Willie Horton. Willie Horton happened 30 years ago. Mm. But it's still the name because it happens so infrequently. And we, we, again, like legislators are, they're lazy children. It's just like, yeah, that's scary, but have some bravery and be like, uh, I, have, I have this collage that I bring around with me to these trainings with DAs because in the, in the juvenile unit that I used to work, I, I used to divert gun cases. I divert them because this man right here and that man back there knows that like the thing that is eating our young men for breakfast here is the possession of handguns in this city. Um, Meaning eating their breakfast in terms of putting them away. Putting them away, uh, imprinting them with life sentences in terms of a criminal record for the rest of their lives they cannot get out of. You're a black boy from Dorchester, you're convicted with a gun, you're done. The, the uh, legislative intent of the minimum mandatory 18-month sentence was to deter people from picking up guns absent anything to do 
with making people feel safer, making these young people feel safer. And so lo and behold, again, these kids aren't out there like, oh, is it going to be 18 months of house of correction? I'm going to my brain's blown out. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to choose to not pick up a gun. It's like, that doesn't work. And so you have lots of kids who are getting arrested for carrying guns that have no intention of ever shooting them, but we treat them just the exact same as everyone else. We put them in jail. They come back out and lo and behold, what happens? Now they're, now they're worse. And so the, the, the idea that I had behind this program was just like, let's talk to the young people who are carrying these guns, figure out the reasons that they're carrying the guns, respond to those reasons that they're carrying the guns, and see what happens. And lo and behold, the, the college that I carry around is like pictures of young men who are now in college or they're employed or they're people that I continue to keep in touch with, like on the, on the regular, on the daily. And yeah, the, in that collage, there's a kid that I lost to homicide. There's a kid that, that is now still incarcerated. But when I look at that collage and I see all these young people and I think about all the young people that aren't even on it because I haven't updated it, it's like, this is my scoreboard. I would much rather this than you look at a, a prosecutor in Camden, New Jersey, who sort of had this awakening. Uh, in 2016, Camden, New Jersey cleared, meaning convicted, 67 homicides. Um, that DA went back and looked at each one of those 67 homicides and he found that 64 of the 67 defendants that had been convicted of homicide had been committed to the Department of Youth Services at least once. And nobody went and was like, you idiots, why did you lock these kids up? Like, look at this problem. But he had this awakening to say, like, we, ha we have to do better than that. And so that's the, that's the bravery, that's the, 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 the courageousness that we need to see. But what's so, I think, essential about your story, Adam, is that you had alternatives to offer that you felt good about. It wasn't like, let's just let these kids who have guns go and hope that they start not thinking they need guns to protect themselves, even though you ask every single one of them why they have a gun, they're going to use the word protection. You were offering something else. And having something else good and viable to offer that's like really part of the community and understands these kids' lives is just absolutely vital. In a lot of places, those programs don't exist. And so part of what we need are new tools. To, we think of law enforcement as the way that we prevent crime, right? Where minds go to the cops and the courts. But actually, there are all these other things that are harder to have one word for. Um, it sounds like there are people in this audience who represent those kinds of efforts, and that is so important, but we just have much less of it to offer usually. I, I just, but I just want to like push back a little bit because we think we're like, yeah, you need a program. It's like, actually, no, like that man back there with the white hair and the glasses on, happy birthday, dad. Um, <laughs> that was my program. It was just a dude who like cared enough to spend some time with young people in the afternoon. John back there, like, he didn't start out with a program. He started out with an idea that like kid needs, kids need protection. I'm going to give him a space to come and work out and learn how to do this. Jumani, like what, what, if it's in his organization or just out in the street, he's a, he's a face and an adult that cares about people. It's just like he has saved numerous people's lives. He has saved numerous people's lives. DAs back there have saved numerous people's lives just because they've taken a moment to care. And that moment of care is enough protection to at least have the kid come back the next day. And so I have a really hard time, like, when I go to these places that are like, we're resource poor. And it's like, do you have an empty building and a, and a couple of adults are looking for something to do and, like, something to entertain children until it's time to go to sleep? Then you're halfway there because that's how the rest of America lives. And we don't call it a program. We call it a community or neighborhood or, care, or caring neighbors. And that's, like, really where we need to get back to is everyone in this room understanding there's some fraction of your day that you can be putting in that time somewhere, even if it's writing a check. Um, and, and like, we don't need a, a nonprofit I, to do it. And on that note, 
Uh, we are out of time, but I want to thank all of you for coming. Thank you, Adam. And Emily will be uh, with her book uh, in the front, I believe. Uh, signing at, books. Very signing lovely, books. For anyone who would like one. Uh, in the front. So thank it's you very, very much. very good. And you guys, Five thank you books. so much. Thank you.